Hey everyone, welcome back to the Repeatable Revenue Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Green, and if you're in a revenue leadership role, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore all the things it takes to create reliable, repeatable sales growth in your business. So we talk strategy, tactics, marketing, sales, culture, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll learn from me and my experience from sales rep to CEO, as well as other guests and experts. Check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me and our community of entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening. Now, let's dive into why you're here today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Repeatable Revenue Podcast. Really excited to have you here. Today, we will be talking about hiring your first sales rep as, a, as an entrepreneur. Part of this call was from a live Q&A that we did with the Repeatable Revenue community. And I'm also answering some of the questions that I had sent to me over my LinkedIn post that I sent out earlier this week, asking if entrepreneurs had any questions on hiring their, their first salesperson. I got quite a few really good questions, and I packed them into some themes. And uh, I go through that now. So hopefully you get some value out of this if you're an entrepreneur that's considering or looking to, to hire your first salesperson. And without further ado, let's jump into this. Before we get started, is there anything for the few of you that are that are here, anything in particular that you wanted to get out of today? Or you want me to start with some of the questions that I got on LinkedIn? Or did you have a, a few specific ones that you wanted to, to ask now? Well, I've always wanted to know what to to look for how to even hire a salesperson. So for me, it's, it's a learning. I mean, Eric has done it um, in the past, but I have not. So that's what I wanted to get out of. Okay, cool. So I'll dive in. You know, I got a few questions from LinkedIn. And the one that seemed, or some variation of it was, when's the right time for your first salesperson? And you know, I, I gave this a lot of thought. And if I were to boil this down, I'd say it's sales. And when you can actually train a salesperson what they need to do to be successful. And the reason I say that is there's what I actually see more often than, than not is, hey, we don't have sales or we don't even have leads. So what we'll do, hire a salesperson to fix that problem for us. And when you don't have sales coming in the door or you don't have a defined process, what that is, is that's a business problem, right? So the salesperson is not going to fix what's underlying the business problem any more than getting a CRM is going to fix the problem of not having a sales process or getting a sauna isn't going to fix the inability to execute really well in the organization. Like the, the salesperson is not going to fix the source of the problem. So if you don't have or you don't have leads coming in the door, I think that's a problem that you solve before you hire the salesperson. Sometimes the, the entrepreneur or the small business owner says, well, I'm not really good at sales. I have a really good idea. I have a good product, but I'm not good at sales. So I'm just going to hire somebody else to do that. My advice is if you're not willing to sell your own product or sell yourself, especially in the early days, it's very tough to expect somebody else to do that for you. And, and the other thing about that is you're, you're missing out on a lot of feedback and a lot of intel because sales is an R&D channel. Like every sales call that you're taking, and you know this as an entrepreneur, you're getting feedback. You're hearing what your audience is saying. You're hearing what they like. You're hearing what they don't like. You're hearing the questions that are going to come up. And all of those things are, are things that you want to know as, as the entrepreneur. And those are the really important things that are going to go into like a sales playbook later on to actually <clears throat> help the salesperson succeed. So I wouldn't expect a salesperson to do what you won't do. And going back to the 
the actual business problem though, if you don't have a steady flow of leads. So everything that we'll do, I mean, the, this is called repeatable revenue, right? Everything that we do is in the context of creating systems and processes that can be repeated over and over and over again. And if you don't have a repeatable way of driving leads to your business or to your salesperson, that's not necessarily a sales problem. That's a marketing problem. This is the thing that I see most often. And you can go scan Upwork and you'll see, hey, need a cold calling assassin, somebody to basically come in and sell because we have no marketing going on. Sales is not marketing. You have to invest in generating leads. You have to invest in raising awareness. You have to create some interest in who you are or you know, even better, actually create demand and intent and create the opportunities for your salesperson to succeed. You can't throw a salesperson on the phone and expect them to supplement all of the things that go into the to growth in a business. If you don't have a repeatable way of driving leads, you're not going to have a repeatable sales process. So when you throw somebody on the phone to go fix that problem, you're setting them up to fail. If you don't have a repeatable lead gen system, then at least have a sales process defined, a proven sales process defined that your new salesperson can actually follow, that you can train them on. And, and it has to be something that you've seen work, that you've ideally done yourself. And the reason for that is if you don't go through the process, say you don't have a you know a big marketing engine that's pushing all the leads in and you don't have a funnel. Okay, and so you need like an, an SDR type of person or sales development rep to go out and generate some of those opportunities. Well, do you hand them a phone book? Like get busy. When you sit down and create a repeatable sales process on the front end, even if it's an outbound, go get your own leads environment, there's still a lot that goes into that. Like you have to define your audience. Do you really know who your target audience really is? And if you say small businesses, you have to really hone into a niche and a well-defined audience. Then how are you going to get a list of those people? Then how are you going to organize that list? Do you have a CRM? How are you going to track the activity that's done? How are you going to introduce yourself when you get them on the phone? How are you going to engage them? How are you going to close them? And when you don't have these things planned out, mapped out, and proven on the front end, and you can't train somebody, this is what you do step-by-step and how to succeed, again, it's, it's just another way of setting them up to fail. Very well said. Thanks. You know, and it's really common. The best way to illustrate it from my experience is if you get on Upwork and you search for sales roles and it is, I don't know what the actual number is, but a a significant majority of those are small businesses, entrepreneurs in an early phase of growth that have something like an idea or a proven product or something and they have no systems, no processes, no way of generating uh, revenue on, on a consistent basis. And they don't have all the other things set up. So what they wanna do is hire a good salesperson, expect them to fix all of this stuff. And that's not fair to the salesperson. And also it doesn't work because when you really drill down and peel back and, and understand the problems that you're asking them to solve, if you haven't really defined the niche, if you haven't really defined how you're gonna <clears throat> go after that list or where are they? which social platform, which groups are they part of, which memberships are they part of? How are you going to get access to them? Asking sales to do marketing's job is incredibly expensive. You know, there are so many cheaper ways to get eyeballs on your content from your audience on something to generate the awareness and the interest before a salesperson makes that phone call or takes that phone call that if you're asking the salesperson to to do all the front end work that hasn't been done, it's usually not a cost effective model. The other thing is, even if you do go get somebody and they do come in and fix those problems for you, then you're like, holy shit, this is great. Like this person's selling. How are you going to do it again? 
it's still not a repeatable process. If they get in there and even if they succeed and they're not able to really illustrate this is how they're doing it, if they're just, hey, I'm just chasing stuff, just trying to get sales, long run, that's not really terribly beneficial either. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And um, of course, and I've told you before, Ray, my concern is that uh, when we uh, start turning on the marketing, then we have more than we can handle. And that's another, you know, that's a consideration for us. Like, do we turn on the faucet first? And, and then, but we have a very small bucket, meaning uh, the manpower we have bandwidth we have, or do we increase the bucket and then turn on the faucet? Mm, good question. You know, my answer to that is usually, and it, it applies to a lot of problems, solve for the immediate problem. Don't try to solve for the secondary or the tertiary problem. If the problem is leads today, then let's solve that problem. And, and if that creates the problem that you want, which is we have too many leads, now we need to do something about it, then solve that problem. Because what can happen is, I know you guys, you guys are really smart, right? So you can think about the things that are going to happen down the road. Well, if we do this, then this. Okay. And then if we get this, then this. And you end up in this like paralysis analysis, whatever because you're trying to solve for all the problems simultaneously. And I was at a, a company once and they said, well, if we do that, then this is going to happen. And I said, okay, show me that problem. Let's, let's make that problem a reality. So turn on the faucet, make sure it works because you don't want to invest a bunch of time and a bunch of effort into creating all these sales processes and playbooks and training and everything. And you're like, oh shit, the leads doesn't work. We have to go back and solve that problem. So I would solve them in order and my, the advice is usually just show me that problem. And that's a good thing. You know, when you have too many leads to handle, the number of salespeople, the caliber of salesperson that you're going to be able to access when that's the problem is very different. Because if you go out to hire a salesperson today and you say, hey, we're building all this marketing stuff, there's nothing really today. You know, if you're a professional salesperson, you have a tenured pro, he's going to look at that and go, uh, call me when you have leads. I, I, I don't want to sit down and start scraping through a phone book or be trying to figure all this out. So actually, you end up changing the caliber of person that you can get to that way too. Yeah, I can see it. It makes sense. So, you know, what do you look for when you're hiring a salesperson? It's tough because I work with people in different industries, primarily B2B audiences though. My sales hiring is a little bit unorthodox and it has been for as long as I know. I'll tell you what I don't look for is... I don't necessarily look for 10 years of industry experience or experience from a particular company. My thinking behind some of those things is, you know, it's, and, and I've seen some businesses do this where, you know, you want somebody with the industry experience. Well, a lot of times what you're doing is you're adopting bad habits and processes yeah. of another organization right into your organization. And <laughs> I want my surgeon and my lawyer to have a lot of experience. I need my salespeople to have sales acumen, you know, but they don't have to have 10 years of a particular industry experience. Very few are, are out there where that's really required. Of course, if you have licenses and other professional credentials that are required, those things, more often than not, when you see industry experience, what you're really saying is, I want to hire somebody from that company or that industry, because I think by hiring them, I get to fast track the learning and the training. We've talked about this before. I mean, uh, we look for integrity. 
And if you get people with integrity, then a lot of problems are solved. They'll rob gas stations to make their quota. And not only that, you never have to question whether they're going to screw over the client or are they going to act in their own interest over the interests of the client. Yep. You can learn to design rocket nozzles or jet engines or computer chips or something. That's just learning. It might take a week. It might take 20 years, but that's teachable. But if their mother did a bad job and they didn't teach them integrity, there's not a bloody thing you can do about it. The first thing I look for in sales is I call it culture, but it's really the same thing. What you're looking for is, is this person a fit? Like, do I want to work with this person? Do they fit the long-term objectives of what I want this company to be and what I want this company to stand for? Uh, I'm a big proponent of, of core values. So if you have those, that's the first screen. Like before anything, are you a fit here? Colin says, right people on the bus, then in the right seat. And a lot of organizations do that in other parts of the business, but then they don't do it in sales because sales is, well, if they can sell, as long as they can bring in money, then everything's going to take care of itself. And it's, and it's not because if you do that, that is the value. Like you've made that the value is money at all costs. Even in sales, culture is the first thing that I would look for. I like to look at what's your prior performance and can you prove it? Whether it's in sales or elsewhere, what's your prior performance? Can you show me sales reports? How did you stack up against other people on your team? Tell me about some time that you've done something really great for the organization. Tell me about a time that you went above and beyond your standard responsibilities. I'm looking for high performers. I ask them to prove it. Asking them to, to really demonstrate performance as much as possible, I think is a really big deal. At one point for an organization I was with, I had a recruiter tell me, that I couldn't check references because I was making myself susceptible to lawsuits. You know, when you start calling prior employers and this and that, and I'd say, well, that was the shittiest advice I ever took for a short period of time because it's it just leave in the dark. If I can't validate what you're telling me, then we're probably not going to get off to the right foot. A couple of other things I, I look at from a sales standpoint, you know, like coachability and, and humility. Coachability, like if, if somebody's not able to take feedback, if, if somebody thinks that they already have all the answers, that's not somebody I really want to work with. And it's probably pretty indicative of the fact that they're not going to be constantly learning, constantly improving, constantly developing. So I try to hone in on that. I joke sometimes that I'm not really a great manager. I'm a better leader than I am a manager. So I don't want to have to micromanage people. I want people that can take a framework, can take direction, but they're proactive, they're disciplined, they're able to execute on their own and they do it naturally. Like high performers, you usually have to hold them back more than you have to push them to do their job. And the last thing I want to be doing is standing over somebody's shoulder talking about number of calls or what were you doing on your on your lunch break that you were gone 15 minutes? That is the bane of my existence. And I won't do it. I tell people up front when I'm hiring salespeople, I will not do that. That's not my job. And it's your job to do your job. Like my, It's my job to remove obstacles. It's my job to create a really good environment. It's my job to give you good teammates. It's my job to give you good tools and resources to do your job. But it's not my job to motivate you to actually do yours. I'm trying to to suss that out in the interview process. I would also say just a learner. You know, I want people that are hungry for new processes and new ways of doing things. And I'll ask them, what books are you reading now? What trainings have you done recently? It doesn't even have to be sales related. It can be any, but a driven, disciplined, proactive person is just gonna always be doing that on their own. And if they can't tell you two or three things that they've done to improve themselves recently, that's usually not the person that I want or think about in terms of, 
being the highest performers, at least from my experience. I've seen this in a couple of industries, like people want to hire a salesperson for their Rolodex or for like their contacts. And in some instances that may help you, you know, get started or get a book of business. But the other thing to think about, I'm always really leery about that because Rolodexes expire, right? If you're not constantly, you know, keeping your network fresh, that's one part of it. The other part of it is that's an asset of the salesperson, not of the business. If I'm building a business today and I'm building it for repeatability, I'm building it to have assets within the business that create value of the business on its own. If you hire a salesperson exclusively for their contacts with other people, when they leave, they take those contacts to the next place. And that's not an asset of the business. So it's really risky to hire somebody for the Rolodex to get the quick hit in sales. Over time, you find they can just take that book of business somewhere else. And that's not a place where I would want to be if I were building the business. I want to add something on to what you're talking about. And you were talking about the person. The cultural fit in the sales team is really important because they are your company's image. I mean, if you get a slime bag out there, I don't care how upright the whole company is, everyone's going to perceive you as a slime bag company. And so once again, integrity is, is king. Integrity rings true. I mean, it really does. It's like us. I mean, you've talked to a lot of our clients. And do we screw stuff up? Guaranteed, dude, all the time. But our clients know that it isn't ever done intentionally or we always have their best interest at heart. It's really true, though. Your salespeople, they are the base, the voice of the company. And and in that respect, they are an extension of the brand. And it works in in more ways than one. Like Integrity is certainly a, a big part of it. If your experience is pretty shitty with a salesperson, that's really tough to overcome right? As a business. I mean, as as an owner, you can go back and try to make amends, but if they're doing that on a consistent basis, not the brand you want. The other thing is depending on your industry and what you do, they may reflect how good you are at your job. Um, So I work with some companies that coach or teach sales and marketing to other companies. Well, imagine what happens if I call a big business coach's business and their salesperson isn't good at sales. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. So they are reflective of your company in so many ways, in the appearance, in the voice, in the capability, in the competency of what you're doing. And that's, it says a lot. Yeah, that's a great thing? point, uh, Eric. Uh, I mm-hmm. agree. I think uh, certainly the, the energy and effort and enthusiasm and execution are all huge in regards to getting those good salespeople. And you want a good one, but eventually you want to make them great. So... Let's pick a situation where I was selling very complex security products to the NSA, CIAs of Asia. The training really consisted of, I got some training on it, but what I literally would do is, and you need to do this to a certain degree, is you you meet with a client, you tell them, look, I'm basically collecting information and we're going to have a call with the expert, whatever he is, uh, at this time. That is your training for many people. It's an ongoing process, but we also need sales tools. Otherwise, you've got your salespeople spending all their time creating stuff that they don't know how to create. Absolutely. Uh, You got some feedback on this? I do. I kind of have two thoughts on it. One is, even in a really complex um, sales environment, in fact, I would argue perhaps more so, Mm -hmm. there's a tendency to overemphasize the importance of knowledge of the product in the training. And I believe by doing that, you oftentimes train the salesperson to overemphasize product details in the sale. 
And and what I mean by that is, so everybody knows, I was, I was at the chamber for a long time, the U.S. chamber. Well, the U.S. chamber is a very, very complex organization. It's the world's largest advocacy group. It's oftentimes confused with the local chamber and, and, they, and there are different perceptions of different local chambers in every city. There's a nonprofit, there's a think tank, there's an advocacy arm, legal reform, there's so many different initiatives. I mean, it's a, it's a very complex. And if we brought people in and said, okay, we're going to try to teach you everything there is to know about the chamber. Good luck. Like there's absolutely no way that you could, what we could do is distill, you know, with the 80, 20 rule, what does the buyer really want? Like when somebody's joining, why are they really joining? And if they're not joining for all the complexity, like they're joining for a part of something, right? So understanding what the buyer really wants and then training the sales fundamentals and the sales acumen tends to help salespeople even in complex selling environments. In your case specifically, I would argue it's not that complex of a sale. Like if you right. understand what people really want, and I think you do, you know, when even when we first met, I think you understood your buyer's needs more than you you claim to have because you understood that you weren't selling houses you were selling investment vehicles you were selling roads to retirement you were selling roads to wealth there were other things that you were accomplishing so i think you you kind of know that but i wouldn't say that that your sale is is terribly complex you have a process and it's proven the the toughest part of your sale is just gaining their trust i want to uh, stick on this topic for a moment longer the thing we battle more than anything, we have an education process initially to get them to think like us. That's fairly complex. But once we get past that, it's not. But we have to gain their trust. And that's really through answering a large number of bizarre questions, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. So I really, I want our salespeople to understand all this stuff so that they know when they're getting into trouble. But I don't necessarily ever want the salespeople to answer all the questions. They are the relationship manager. They're not the technical doodah. Do you agree? I do. I don't think it's the salesperson's job to answer all the questions. Because the vast majority of the time, I don't mean to say this in a condescending way, but prospects tend not to ask the right questions because they don't know what they don't know. Right. So if they're asking a lot of technical questions, they may be asking the wrong question. It's it's the salesperson's job to peel back what the purpose of those questions are. Like, why is there still uncertainty? What are you really trying to get at? What's really going on? What are the real motivations under that? And the salesperson's job is to simplify a complex sale. So they have to understand what's going on, but their job is to simplify the value proposition or the unique selling proposition in a way that the prospect can really understand it. From what I've seen in complex sales, when the salesperson is just asked, it's just answering a lot of technical questions. That's like a Q&A. That's not a sales process. That's not a closed process necessarily. It's informational. And if information is the only thing that they need to close, okay, I think that that's not really what's going on. The other thing I would say is if you have a product that requires a lot of education, put the burden of education on marketing. Allow marketing to do a lot of the education for you because it can be done far more efficiently. You can educate at scale with marketing and you can only educate in a one-on-one -on -one environment with sales. If I have a complex product and I'm required as a salesperson to educate you on what all that means, I can only do that for a finite number of hours per day with a finite number of people. Marketing done really well can scale that education. And so you can move people a lot further along in the funnel a lot more efficiently and the economic model tends to work a lot better. Yeah. And you get them to sales and they're further along in the process. So if, 
if I'm in a business and I'm hearing salespeople have to give like hours and hours and do follow-up after follow-up after follow-up, to me, that's usually indicative of we should we should flip this to a degree and start looking at the marketing funnel and understand why are people getting to this point and don't know some of the stuff that we could teach them other ways. So why are we putting the, the burden on the salesperson to educate to the entire funnel? Does that does that resonate? Do yeah. You, yeah. It's actually a very good point, Ray. The poorer the job the marketing has done, the smarter the, the uh, salesperson has to be. Yep. That and then you can hire somebody that knows how to do exactly that part of the, like they are a real surgeon. Yeah. They are a specialist. When you've got this thing well-oiled and it's, it's moving along, then what you're doing is you're hiring closers. The difference between somebody that can close really, really well and somebody that can do all of it pretty well is a huge difference in performance. And it's a very different person. You know, the person that is just is well-trained to be a closer. Like you put up opportunities, you put the ball on the tee and they just crush it. That person is oftentimes a very different personality type than the person that you're going to need to walk them through the entire educational process, answer all the technical questions, play some customer service, and be good at closing. Those people are unicorns. The way I think about everything is in terms of repeatability. I want to undo any part of a business that requires a unicorn. I'm looking for the unicorn because that is usually indicative of a part of the process that's broken. We haven't been able to find new people that do this or he or she's the only person that can do this. Let's untangle that bowl of spaghetti and figure out why. And oftentimes it's exactly what you're talking about, Eric. Like if I need somebody that can explain to them whatever it is, the encryption and the technology and understand CIA, NSA, and also close really well, like, holy shit, there's not a lot of those people. <laughs> yes. Wow, this is, yes. I mean, for me, this is like tremendous uh, value, right? In my mind, I was going to look for someone like what you describe as unicorn. It's difficult to find. They're difficult to replicate. And then they also, I don't know the right way to say this, but they, they have too much influence in the business. Yeah. Say I have a really complex sale and I have no marketing and I find this person and she goes out and she kills it. So you find somebody that's capable of doing all of this. Now, fast forward 12 months. And if they have all that figured out, it's their process. All the knowledge is in their head, all the things that you want to extract. And that person becomes untouchable. This is what happens in a lot of organizations. When you find that person and, and it's a, you know, it's a, they're the outlier and then you build around that person. They hold you hostage is the term yep. that I kind of like. You're absolutely right. I've seen this across many organizations because you go out, you get, you need the unicorn. You're trying to solve that need. And so you patch them in instead of creating the system to do it. And it's a vulnerability later. It's no fun to, to deal with that down the road. And so if you do have a complex product, then you look at the funnel and you go, okay, what's the most effective way to get them to consume as much information as possible before they get on this phone call so that this call can be as, as refined and effective as possible. And I waste as little time as possible because people will just, they'll just select themselves out, right? When they come across something and they don't agree with you philosophically, they will go, eh, never mind. And I know you guys deal with a lot of these like fake guru philosophy types of people. Well, let them just bounce themselves out as they're reading and consuming your content. The more complex the, the product, the more you just want them to consume before they even talk to your sales team. One of the things that I have done a sucky job at, and I've talked to experts and they know less than I do, and that is lead distribution. You know, mm. that is a really complex animal. 
because you have statistical problems where, you know, uh, this guy, for no reason other than the no reason other than God, got the three good leads and the other one got three horrible leads. And um, can you, do you have any thoughts? Because we're going to hit this when we add somebody. uh, Any thoughts on how you distribute leads? I'm actually working with with a group on this exactly right now. Two things. One is the funnel plays a really important part of this, right? As things move through the funnel, you can start to score them. If I get to this stage, if I get to this stage, if I get to this stage, and sales can go after any of these things. So say you have a couple of salespeople that are sitting around, they don't have anything to do. What you can do is you can go to your, your marketing pool and you can turn your salespeople into, okay, start doing some outreach. We'll start with the highest probability and move down. But even if you don't have a need for that, as people move through the funnel, when they get to the end, they're going to have, have a score, whether you actually put the score in place or not. And you'll be able to at least define what the different leads that are coming through the, the system are. The other thing I would say, I'm a really big fan of distributing the standard leads equally, at least for a period of time so that you can really understand the, the true performance. And it depends on how many we have coming through the door. So quantity is actually obviously a factor. But let's assume that there's enough that you say everything that comes through this funnel, it's going to go one, 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 one. Over time, whether that time is four days or whether that time is four months, you're going to know who performed better and who didn't. Like Because the, the numbers will level out. That stuff, I would say, keep that equally distributed until you have real true baselines that you can measure the performance against. And then... The ad hoc stuff that comes through the door, like this is your referrals or the low-hanging fruit, the easier stuff that's already pushed along. Use the data from the standard distribution to send that to the person that's performing the best just on a meritocracy. The simplest way for me to say it is take all the standard leads and I would go one and one and I, w- I would report that. I would share that data publicly, You know the outcomes, the key things on what the, what's happening there. <clears throat> And then when you do have these other things that come through the door and you go, hey, Dr. Chen sent somebody over, already ready to go, ready to sign right now. Well, then you can hand that to the person that's performing the best and keep it somewhat separate on the reporting. That doesn't stay secret. I mean, anything that's secret, it becomes public knowledge after one trip to the bathroom. No, 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 I don't. I'm sorry if, if I wasn't clear. Report it, include it on the reports, but in a different category. Because you always want that baseline to stay unskewed. And if one person's getting all this other stuff, it tends to skew the data. And it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I just have a separate category or something that says basically gimmies and separate them the baseline. But I agree yeah, with you. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of, of transparency in the reporting. I like to use that standard number as the reason I'm making all my decisions. As a sales manager, I like data helping me make decisions because I don't want to be in the position of explaining anecdotal, subjective, I felt like this this day, or this lead felt like a personality that better fits this person. That's a really exhausting way to spend sales management. I would like the data to make it really easy to say, yeah, I gave it to Taylor because the last 12 deals that have come through the door, she's closed seven, you closed one. That's the benefit of doing really well on gimmies or ad hoc stuff. This was a huge deal at the chamber when I, I came in and I standardized all the distribution and then I started creating special campaigns that had a significantly higher probability of, of winning. And I would distribute those opportunities based on the performance of the standard opportunities. And that just made life way easier in public. I had nothing to hide because I was basing it on performance 
everybody didn't love it, but it, it was easy to look at on a report and go, yeah, I can see why Charles yeah. got the such and such lead. And then I keep the data clean. Like when those leads go over to other people, I didn't bulk them into the total performance. Everybody could clearly see, hey, Charles is not only doing really well on these other leads, he's also doing, he's also beating everybody on the standard distribution too. And I think that helps from a sales management standpoint. I think that helps in one area, which I hadn't really considered, Ray, was the use of the marketing qualification channel, whatever you want to call that, to eliminate the uh, the junk. Because um, the organizations that I have, I run several sales organizations, we never had any marketing capability, never. Mm-hmm. So we got you know wheat and chaff, mostly chaff, quite honestly. If you have an effective um, marketing in this pre-qualification, this is nothing I've really done. I need to think about this, but I think that is a very valid thing to do yes. is to use marketing to clean everything at first. And then the odds are you're giving people good stuff to start with. And if you have something, something complex, then you can say, hey, you know, when you close three in one month, you'll get these two. This is an overgeneralization, but I, I think B2B has historically been heavy sales, light marketing, and B2C has been heavy marketing, light sales. Like your salesperson at Foot Locker was never like a really high ticket closer, right? But Foot Locker had done enough marketing to get you in the door and you pretty much knew which pair of Air Jordans you were going to buy. So he just had to not suck at his job to take his order usually. And every once in a while, there was a good one. But B2B... That historically hasn't been a heavy marketing channel anyway. It's just recently that I think B2B companies are really starting to invest in marketing on the front end. And so it's it's been pretty standard to have sales be your marketing channel. Many years ago, I was on the tail end of when they'd give you a box of DMB cards. Like, here you go, have fun. And you're like, all right, let's see. That's a different game now. You know, you've actually made a very good point that I've never really made the connection on. I tend to be called in when people hit a plateau. Right. And so you go in and you want to diagnose, right, what's the source of the plateau? And in long established companies, more than half of the time, there is a unicorn of sorts somewhere in the sales process that has consciously or unconsciously consolidated all of the complexity in the sales process and figured it out. But they can't extract what's in their head into a repeatable process. They're holding you hostage, whether they know it or not. Because all of that complexity, thank you for solving it. But shit, I still need to solve it. As a business, we still need to solve it. And that's that's the challenge. If you do find your unicorn and they succeed and the dog catches the car in 12, 24 months, you find yourself in the same situation because they just absorb the complexity. Exactly. Rather than- this is, you know, the really big fundamental change in thought process. Let me back up. You've been very good at saying, you know, dude, you've done this for 30 years. Congratulations. You've done it wrong for 30 years, which is really big for me. I really like that. I'm not saying anybody's done anything wrong for 30, for 30 years. Yeah. And I actually mean that technology has enabled a new sales process. And for the people that have harnessed that, it is becoming a weapon that they can use to grow and scale and do it e- more easily than it would be the other way. 20 years ago, if you wanted to get out into the market as a B2B company, you probably had to hire some field reps or, you know, now you have access to funnels, you have social networks, you have all of these things that have enabled us to reach people at scale if we're disciplined enough 
to do some things in the front end, like clearly define who we want to reach, really figure out what they want, and then deliver the right message. So if you do those things, it gets really easy. If you haven't done those initial things, it's still a huge pain in the ass because now you're just, just trying to broadcast a message without any real relevancy to the audience. We have more tools like using the marketing funnel in your sales operation. That's still not common. I mean, I know this, but almost every sales organization I walk into is not doing that today. And that's even if they have a funnel. So you're not alone. To me, the biggest value you've done is to get me to think right. I mean, you talk to people and you know the problems you're running into. Um, we all, we're kind of myopic. We sit here in our little, you know, foxhole. And if I knew a lot about sales, what would I ask you about? One of the things I would start looking at is the math behind how much throughput we need on the funnel to hire a salesperson, right? So how many qualified leads and opportunities need to come through this funnel over what period of time to ensure that a salesperson always has enough to hunt, but not so much that they can just sit around and do nothing, right? That's going to be the amount of pressure we're going to want to put on the funnel. So we want to know that anyway. I mean, even if they're all going to you, but if you're at a place where you're even considering hiring somebody, then, all right, we need to put three, four calls on their calendar per day, 10 calls on their calendar per day. How much throughput do we need on the volume, which then we can back into, all right, how many people do we need to get into it to begin with and all of that jazz. Mm-hmm.